Thanks for listening once again to Thinking Biblically About Things That Matter. Uh, my name is Steve Ron, and just like last week, we actually have a guest teacher today. Uh, Mark Baumgartner uh, last week uh, did a um, lesson on immutability, and today he's got a follow-up, a, a, second, a second lesson on the immutability of God. So this is Immutability of God, um, Part 2. And uh, I, blessing to me, I got to sit and listen to it live um, in Sunday school. It was a, it was a blessing, it was a help, um, and I know it'll be a, a blessing to you as well. Uh, so, uh, thanks for listening. Hello, everybody. Last week, in the first lesson on the immutability of God, <clears throat> I was careful to make the point that when we say that God doesn't change, we mean in his being, in his perfections, in his attributes, in his purposes, and in his promises. But that is not to say that God doesn't change in any sense at all. It is therefore imperative that we proceed with caution and yet with conviction in the explanation of the sense in which God can and cannot change. And so any look at the doctrine of immutability must include the answering of three questions. And that's what I want to try and do in this second and last lesson on immutability. Now, the first two questions I want to just briefly cover, and then the third question I want to spend a little bit more time. It's not that the other two are not important, but it's, it's just for emphasis. And it's, it's something also that has been on my heart and mind recently. And I, I, I kind of um, want to, to give a heads up that perhaps I may um, do a little bit of preaching. So you'll have to bear with me because the subject matter... <clears throat> is one that stirs up my spirit, and especially when it comes to the purity of the gospel. The first question concerns the person of Jesus Christ. We are told in John chapter 1, verse 14, that, and the Word became flesh. God the Son took upon Himself humanity. He became human. And does that not 
suggest a change? Well, yes, it does. And a significant one. But let me ask you this, uh, the question, what change do we mean? And more importantly, what change don't we mean? That is when the Word became flesh. Did He cease to be God? When the God the Son became human, did He lose His divine attributes? Did He diminish in any way in His deity? Of course, the answer to that is absolutely not. There was, that's not what we mean or what John means when the Word became flesh. There was not a subtraction of His deity, but there was an addition of His humanity. The change was in His mode of existence. God the Son became the God-man. Fully God, fully man. And He will be that for all eternity. An amazing thing. And so... The second question that comes up when we think of the immutability of God, excuse me, concerns the Old Testament statements about God in which it says that he relented or changed his mind or regretted. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 10, we read, The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Or the one that we are probably most familiar with is in the prophecy of Jonah, chapter 3, verse 10. It says, when God saw what they did, that is, the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And so how do we explain that in the light of the fact that God doesn't change? Well, let me say that I cannot improve upon the explanation 
by some of the greatest Christian thinkers that the Christian church has ever produced. Men like Charnock, Shedd, Strong, and others. And they, in their explanation, and I want to try to summarize this, they acknowledge, they all acknowledge the difference between unconditional divine decrees and conditional divine announcements or warnings. The former will occur irrespective of other factors. The latter may occur dependent on the response of the person or persons to whom they apply. And what we find in the case of Jonah and the Ninevites is most likely not an unqualified and unconditional declaration of purpose but rather a conditional divine announcement or warning. For example, uh, of one of these divine, uh, conditional divine announcements or warning in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 5 through 12, says this, Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Now therefore, say to the the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you, and devising a plan against you, return every one, one from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. But they say, this is in vain. We will follow our own plans and will every one act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. That God declared his intention to destroy Nineveh only to withhold his hand when they repented 
is thus no threat to the doctrine of immutability. On the contrary, had God destroyed Nineveh, notwithstanding its repentance, he would have shown himself mutable. You see, God's immutability requires him to treat the wicked differently than the righteous. When the wicked repent, his treatment of them must change. Thus, it is a principle of of God's immutable being, as his word reveals, that he punish the wicked and repentant, but blesses and forgives the righteous and repentant. If God were to reveal himself as such, as in fact he has done, only to punish the repentant and bless the unrepentant, this would constitute real change and thus destroy immutability. God's declaration of intent to punish the Ninevites because of their sinful behavior and wickedness is based on the assumption that they are and will remain wicked. However, if and when they repent, as they did, to punish them, notwithstanding, would constitute a change in God's will and in his word. And so we come now to the third question, the one that I want to spend uh, more time on. The third question concerns the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the unchangeable nature of God. It raises a question that we need to answer. And that question goes something like this. Given that God is unchangeable, how does one equate the warlike, killing, wrathful God of the Old Testament with the peaceful, loving God of the New Testament? If you had two people who had never read the Bible, ask one to read only the Old Testament and ask the other to read only the New New Testament and then compare their views of God. What is the Bible trying to teach us by this? Have you ever considered that? I believe that most who have read the Bible have at least asked that question in their mind if it hasn't come out of their mouth. In fact, I would say this. It's the one question that never goes away. In the early church, they had a man named Marcion, and he was 
later condemned as a heretic. But Marcion read the Old Testament, and Marcion read the New Testament. And Marcion said, the views of God in the Old and New are so different that they must be talking about two different gods. So what he did was he deleted the Old Testament from his Bible. Not only did he delete the Old Testament from his Bible, he deleted every quotation of the Old Testament from the New Testament. So his Bible was very small. Nothing of the Old Testament and nothing of the Old Testament in the New Testament made up his Bible. But it didn't go away in the early church, even though Marcion was condemned as a heretic. Spurgeon came along in the 1800s, and Spurgeon lamented the fact because he went to many different churches before he was a believer. And he said the one thing that bothered him is that Christians would read large portions of Scripture either together as a congregation or read them before the sermon text. And he said that the odd habit was that when preachers would read out of the Old Testament, they would stop and skip over all of the references to war and God calling people to annihilate a group and all these things about wrath and judgment. And it bothered him. And I can even say that the same thing is true today. Richard Dawkins, the British atheist, recently said this. He says, the God, uh, he said this in comparing the God of the Old Testament with Jesus. He said, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, megalomaniacal, capriciously malevolent bully. And I left out a lot of words I couldn't even pronounce. And I didn't even know what they meant either. That's what he thinks of the God of the Old Testament. This is what he says of Jesus, whom he at least respects. He says Jesus was a great moral teacher. In fact, Jesus was somebody who was so intelligent that if he lived today, he'd be an atheist, knowing what we know today. That's what he says. So here you have an atheist 
who says, I don't like the God of the Old Testament, but this Jesus character, he's a pretty good guy. And so, I want to try and answer this question for us. The fact that God is unchangeable or immutable. And the fact that His promises are unchangeable does not mean, as I said earlier, that He cannot choose to do things differently. Because He doesn't change, does not mean that he cannot change the way he deals with us. God not only can change what he does, but he declares beforehand that he will. Which means anybody reading the Old Testament should have known that once the new covenant covenant was instituted, things would be different. God would remain the same, but the way that he dealt with people as in the institution of the new covenant would change from that point on. See, says the Lord in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 19, I am doing a new thing. Ah, but he's the same God. But he's doing a new thing. And likewise, in Jeremiah chapter 31, when God speaks of the new covenant that he will make with his people, whereby he will forgive the guilty of their sin and write his law upon their hearts and move them to know him from the greatest to the least. It's a new covenant. And the same is true of Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, where he promises that in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my Spirit, which is a prophecy that is quoted by Peter, the Apostle Peter, only in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. It's something that God had never done before. Because in the Old Testament, the anointing of the Holy Spirit was reserved for prophets and priests and kings. And it was given to certain people to perform certain tasks. And when that task was done, the Spirit was removed from them. 
Ah, but not in the New Testament. In the New Testament, when we receive the Holy Spirit, God seals it upon our soul until the day of redemption. We never lose the Spirit. And not only do we never lose the Spirit, but in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, He pours it out upon men and women. Old men and young men, old women and young men, all female and male servants, all different types of people as opposed to the Old Testament. And so the message is clear. The unchangeable nature of God and His promises does not mean He will not change the way He deals with His people. And in my opinion, that is the answer to the question. I would even go so far as to say this. If you don't see the difference between the way God dealt with the Old Testament people, and the way he deals with people in the New Testament, you haven't read your Bible right. Because it's there. And if you haven't asked this question about why there's a difference, you haven't gotten the message he wants to convey by doing it. In Isaiah chapter 61, we find in this passage, I believe, what is the answer to our question. In Isaiah chapter 61, By the way, we know that this is uh, speaking of Jesus. Jesus actually quotes this, this verse and says it was written of him. And so Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. So what does that verse tell us? It tells us that in and through Jesus, God was offering to people a year, a time people, a time period, an age for a season of favor, an age of grace. 
It's not that God himself has changed. It's that God has chosen and purposes to deal differently with people as a result of Jesus and what he would do and accomplish. It's not that God no longer judges people. I've I've heard people say that. They say in the New Testament, God no longer judges people. Or they'll say, God isn't that way anymore. And when I hear people say that, it makes me cringe in the depths of my soul. Because God can never change in his being. What God did do, though, through Christ, was choose to display a greater degree of his grace and a greater degree of his mercy for a season. He says here, a year. It's an age. We could say it's the church age. The time between when Christ came and the time he will return. In that period, God has chosen to do things a different way. But he also wants us to know that when that period ends, the day of the vengeance of our God will be upon us. In other words, God has not done away with judgment. God has not done away with wrath. God has not done away with any of those things. God has not changed at all. But rather what he has chosen to do for this period of history is to offer his grace and mercy to all who will come in faith to Christ. And he offers it in light of the day of judgment that is coming on the whole world. Folks, that's the gospel. The gospel is not come to Christ Because there's no longer any judgment. The gospel is come to Christ because now, in this day, it's the day of salvation. This is the year. This is the time of God's favor. So come to Christ now. Because there's a coming a day when God's vengeance will be poured out upon all the peoples in the earth. And everyone who has not found refuge in Christ will be condemned to eternal damnation. That's the gospel. It is the year of God's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. And if you read the book of Revelation, you'll discover that the God presented in the book of Revelation 
looks an awful lot like the God of the Old Testament. He has to. He's the same God. So what do we have? Do we have a God who is one way in the Old Testament, morphs and becomes kinder and gentler in the New Testament, and then morphs back to a different kind of God in the book of Revelation? Absolutely not. We have the same God from beginning to end, who out of his great love for sinners has chosen to pull back the curtain. My professor at Dallas Theological Seminary used to say it this way. It's like we're all in a concentration camp of sin. And God has come in the person of Jesus. And for this period, he has trampled down the fence and said, Go. Run for it. Escape. Get out of here. Because once that fence goes back, there's no getting out. So is God the same? My goodness, He has to be. He wouldn't be God if He wasn't. Paul picks up that same theme when he says this. Listen to his message. It's exactly the same as Isaiah. 2 Corinthians 5.20 and following. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. And then he concludes, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Why does he stress now? And why does he stress today? Ah, because he knows there's a day coming when that day of favor will be revoked and that age of grace will be wiped away and the vengeance of God will come in all of its fury. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 5, Paul says, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are stirring up wrath for yourselves for the day of wrath when his righteous judgment will be, be revealed. It's also why Paul can say to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, and 10, For they themselves 
report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Does the Old, does the New Testament want us to think that we now have a God who is very promiscuous and turns a blind eye to sin? Not at all. Because He's the same God in the Old Testament that we know hates sin because He's holy. May God bless this lesson to our hearts. And we give all the praise to our great triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All right, so once again, thanks for listening, and thank you to Mark um, for uh, sharing with us these past two weeks a couple of great lessons on immutability. If you missed the first one, I encourage you to go back um, and have a listen to it. And we'll be back next week. We're going to dive into the life of John Knox, Scottish reformer John Knox. So we have a two-part series on his life and his legacy coming up. So stay tuned. That'll be next week. And until then, thanks for listening. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.